1: You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot 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 Everyday Anteaters. All right, Anteater Nation, this is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my live in-studio guests are PhD marine researchers Melissa Brock and Joanna Tavares. Last Friday, in commemoration of Earth Day, they participated in a Zoom webinar from the Newport Beach Pier in between very strong gusts of wind and ocean mist from whitecaps. And did I say... Cold. It was really cold. The webinar focused on their research of the effects of the October 25,000 gallon ocean oil leak that happened on our local waters. Last Saturday, the Orange County Register also did a page three feature story on them. So today we're not only going to look at their research on that project, but also what they're doing outside of that project and how they came to UCI and their research in their different departments. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Young Scientists. How are you today?
0: Great to be here. Hello, Anteaters. What a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin, for having us on your show.
1: Welcome, Joanna. And please, Melissa.
0: Hi, Anteaters. Yes, we're so excited to be here
2: today and talk to you about all of the exciting things that we're doing.
1: Fantastic. Well, Joanna, why don't you just tell us, you know, where you came from and how you ended up at UCI.
0: Absolutely. So I'm originally from Brazil, born and raised in the northeast of Brazil, in a state called Bahia, if anyone has ever been there. Um, so, is
1: that like in the headwaters of the Amazon?
0: I, well, it's northeast, so we're south of that Amazonian region, um, but it's a very tropical part of the country, and uh, we have amazing music, amazing food, and that's, I mean, of course, I'm biased because I'm from that state. but. Um, Um,
1: Was it uh, like a small city or were you in the jungle? You really want to go (laughs) into my biography here.
0: Well, you know, I was born in the capital city of Bahia, which is a city called Salvador. And that's a relatively large city. But then um, when I was about eight years old, we moved to the countryside of that state and that was a very different upbringing from what you know my cousins um got to experience in the big city we actually traveled and lived in several different cities some of them were so small that it didn't have any paved streets for a few years we lived in a in a t- tiny little town that um you know the water wasn't suitable for drinking and we had to actually like live off of barrels of water that were brought in from a different river system. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a really interesting early childhood in Brazil, and I went to school there, I got my bachelor's degree there in oceanography. And then in, back in, I think it was 2003, I came to the U.S. for my master's degree in, uh, at the University of Delaware, and um, there I got a degree in marine science and policy. And then after that, I went to Hawaii, and I got a job working for the state with marine management and coastal management with their uh, division of aquatic resources, and that was pretty fun, and I was there for a couple of years. But then love brought me to California, and I got married. Love will do it every time. <laughs> All right, that's right, and so I came to to California. I initially thought I would be continuing, continue doing what I was doing in Hawaii, which was working for, um, for the government. And, um, but then, um, you know, in a funny turn of events, I started teaching at community college and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I started working with nonprofit organizations and I realized that besides being a scientist, I really enjoyed being an educator, a community organizer and a communicator. So I did that for a solid decade, and then um, I decided to come back to get a PhD. I realized, you know, this is the time. I had had my daughter already, and I figured, you know, I really wanted everyone to call me doctor. I want to be doctor mom, you know, doctor friend, doctor ex-wife, doctor everything. (laughs) Uh, And I wanted to learn more about climate change. I knew that I could not um, fully grasp the, the um, complexity of the problem by myself, which I was trying to do by just reading the literature, and I figured coming back and getting a PhD here at UCI in the Department of, of Earth System Science would be the way for me to actually be able to be prepared to then transition into a career path that would allow me to do the, everything I can about this crisis. So that's it. That's yeah. me. And I've been here for um, five years now and I'm ready to graduate.
1: <sighs> fantastic. So that's Joanna Tavares. And now Melissa Brock, you know, please let us know. Melissa's just starting your PhD program. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, actually, I'm about halfway through now. Okay. It's hard to believe it's already the spring quarter. So uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> fantastic. So where'd you grow up and what'd you like to do when you were a kid?
2: So I'm originally from Florida, the northwest part. So not like Miami and Tampa and Orlando, but like a much smaller town. And
1: Gainesville? or
2: No, further west. Uh, okay. Further west.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually grew up on the Gulf Coast. So I spent a lot of time on our local beaches and like interacting with the water. And yeah, so my favorite thing to do as a kid was like, water sports, basically, like Mm -hmm. snorkeling. I still love to snorkel. Um, Yeah, and just being outside, doing outdoor activities. Yeah,
1: great. So where did you go to your undergrad work?
2: So I did my undergraduate at the University of West Florida and I got my degree in biology. And while I was there, I did a research project looking at the impacts of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill on our local microbial communities. And that project is really what sparked my interest in marine science. So I already had a love of the ocean from like growing up next to it and interacting with it a lot. But now I also had this big interest in understanding not only like how the ocean works, but how um, how humans are interacting with the ocean and how human interactions with the ocean are impacting the
1: ocean. Gotcha. That horizon's. Blowout. That was a massive oil spill. Mm-hmm. Do you have any numbers, estimate of how big that flood of oil was? It was massive, right?
2: It was massive. It was millions of gallons yeah. of oil yeah, into. Yeah. Um, the local ecosystem and it was devastating because i had grown up in that area and i saw the devastating consequences not only on the economy and people's livelihoods but a lot of people's food sources were ruined for months because of how it impacted the fisheries yeah and it was really devastating for the ecosystem it took a really long time for the ecosystem to regain any sort
0: of normal function Mm.
1: what year did that happen do you recall
0: I think it was 14 years ago. I think you just mm-hmm. I just saw the... So about... Uh, uh, I think a week ago. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Has the ecosystem recovered?
0: That's something that they're still
2: assessing, actually. Mm-hmm. They did a 10-year review and... They looked at how the ecosystem is functioning now versus how it was functioning when the oil spill occurred versus how it was functioning before. And I think that's still something we're trying to understand is these longer term impacts of oil spills.
1: Gotcha. Did you come to grad school right away after your undergrad work?
2: No, I had a couple pit stops along the way. Okay. (laughs) Like Joanna, I did a master's degree in... Coastal Sciences, so still, again, in the ocean. (laughs) Gotcha. And for that project, I was looking at the deep sea and how human-made structures, how human infrastructures that are resting on the seafloor, how those are impacting the environment.
1: Wow. So, like, what kind of structures, would that be oil rigs and things, or...?
2: So something that's not really well known is there are thousands of shipwrecks in the Gulf of Mexico because of early exploration, colonization. so there are thousands of these structures on the seafloor that kind of fragment the seabed. And so collectively, it's a large amount of the seafloor that has been impacted by humans. And this is something that we don't see, right, because it's hidden away in the bottom of the ocean.
1: Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so when did you come to UCI?
2: Three years ago now. So okay. 2019 is when I came out to UCI and started my PhD.
1: Okay. Have you stayed the whole time through the pandemic or did you go away?
2: <laughs> um, I stayed here for most of it. I went home for a couple months because everything just shut down and I wanted to be close to my family again until we figured out what was going on basically. Right. Yeah.
1: right. Unbelievable. Well, How did this project come into being? When did you guys first hear about it? How did you hear about it? And did you know right away? It seems like you two on campus came together out of just this sheer desire to do something.
0: Right. So the oil spill happened October 1st, October 2nd. October. I should know this. Uh, (laughs) I think it was October 2nd. But it was a weekend. It was a Saturday. And in fact... Uh, For several days, beachgoers were reporting that they were smelling oil on the beach around Huntington Beach. And some beachgoers and boaters started reporting that they were seeing the water was looking different and shiny. And there were no confirmed, there was nothing from the authorities confirming that there was an oil spill. The company itself was not revealing anything. And so it took a few days for this oil to start washing ashore. And that was a Saturday, I think, that's when the reports of birds covered in oil started to come in. I've worked for many years now with a non-profit organization, amazing non-profit organization. I'm going to do the plug-in here. Amigos de Bolsa Chica in Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, of course, when they heard about those reports of birds being impacted by this oil spill, Immediately, there was a response effort put together to help with the Wildlife Rescue Center at the Huntington Beach facility there.
1: So you were talking to some of your associates Yes, and
0: we were just hearing all this, and I'm thinking, wow, okay, the birds are being impacted. Some fish are being impacted, and I'm sure there will be lots of volunteers to clean that up. And I'm thinking, what about my phytoplankton? You know, nobody's going to worry about my phytoplankton. What's happening to the microorganisms that live in the ocean when spills like this happen? And so I contacted my advisor, even though it was a weekend, we texted each other. And I'm like, did you hear about this oil spill? I was wondering if it would be okay for me to come in tomorrow and get some supplies and then go and collect some samples. And she's like, yeah, why don't you do that? And then we'll talk more and see what can be done in terms of doing actual research. So I came in on that Monday morning, already kind of wanting to do something. And I bumped into Melissa's advisor, Professor Adam Martini. And he was just in the hallway and he was getting ready for a big expedition. He was taking a lot of his lab on this big expedition to Bermuda. And I was like, Adam, Adam, are you guys going to do anything related to this oil spill? Are you collecting? Are you sending anyone to the pier? And he's like, talk to Melissa, talk to Melissa. And so that's what I did. I went to talk to Melissa. We had known each other like in passing, like we had met, but never really worked together and so i came to talk to her and as immediately as soon as i start talking to her i'm like this is awesome we're totally gonna do something together here so i just bugged her and a lot and you know and let uh, asked her if she would let me be part of what she already had in mind
1: Fantastic. Excuse me just for a moment, scientists, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guests today are two UCI marine researchers, Melissa Brock and Joanna Tavares, and we're just talking about their analysis and getting into the start of their uh, work on the October 2021 25,000-gallon oil leakage that took place off our coast of Orange County And Melissa, can you kind of add to the story where we are at right now?
2: Yeah. So how I found out about the spill was another person in my lab group sent me a news article and they were basically like, I can't believe this happened. Because at the time they didn't know how much oil was being spilled when the oil leak was going to be stopped. And there was a lot of concern about, wow, I can't believe this is happening again in like our local community. And immediately I wanted to go get samples. And I was like, we should go today. It was a Sunday. And she was like, well, hang on. (laughs) Like... Like, calm down a little bit. um Maybe we should like youthful <laughs> exuberance. You know? you know, spill. We gotta do something. I'm like, all we need is a bucket and some bottles. I know exactly what we need to do. Let's just go do it. You know, ask for forgiveness, not permission, kind of attitude. And... Yep.
1: yep. Yeah, how, how many? many... J- just to get clarification at UCI, how many? grad students are like you like is it a thousand is it a hundred <laughs> uh,
0: we have you know i i guess we are we can't speak we don't have that data but you know but <laughs> well, well, just we, in
1: terms of your co- you know your oh, fellow students all pretty awesome yeah. i gotta
0: say grad students are like are really special type of people because you know we, we survive for like five sometimes more <laughs> years <laughs> on very not little very money <laughs> <laughs> and you know a lot of enthusiasm and um, all we have is our science yes. you know, <laughs> and each other
1: it's <laughs> very awesome so so is it a few dozen or I mean I, I don't yeah okay
0: yeah. You, you, you mean like in terms of having grad students or well you know how many of
1: you are you know not necessarily who did this project But how many of you are at UCI who are marine researchers?
0: Oh, we have dozens of grad students at UCI who are marine researchers. And and lots of them would definitely jump at an opportunity to do something that is aligned with their line of research. Because we should also contextualize this. Both, as Melissa explained before, she has worked with oil spills before. And in my case, I am, for my actual research thesis, the work that I am doing also has to do with marine pollution that is caused by components released after fossil fuel is combusted. So even though we don't work with oil spills actively, we both have backgrounds or are working on projects that give us enough preparedness to jump on at an opportunity like that. So you know, the other grad students that didn't jump, you know, didn't like start calling everyone and and saying they wanted to go in the field and collect samples. It's mainly because that's not necessarily aligned with their research expertise.
1: Right, right, right. So Melissa, so you start, you've got your buckets and you go out there. How did you determine your research methods?
2: Yeah, so my lab member calmed me down and was like, just wait until tomorrow, we have lab meeting, we can ask our advisor like for permission and then mm-hmm. we can go immediately and go get whatever samples you want.
1: And that's Adam Martini, that's your advisor? Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm -hmm. Professor Adam Martini is my advisor. So I asked him, I said there was an oil spill. I really think that we should look at these like short-term and longer-term impacts of the oil spill because nobody knows how oil impacts California coastal microbes. We don't know this. And it could be really important, you know, not only for this one, but for future incidents. And
1: we've had oil spills in the past, particularly up in the Santa Barbara area, but have they not done, research at this level before, or what?
2: Yeah, most oil spill research focuses on the animals you can see. Mm. Right? So, very little work has been done on these kind of invisible
0: masterminds of microbes. Right. So, Especially long-term impacts, you mm. know, and long, and not just impacts. When we say impacts, people um, immediately associate with um, some kind of um, problem, right? And what we're looking for here is a complete scientific understanding of the role that these microorganisms play. So not only the possibility, the very real possibility that toxic components in these oil products like crude could be harming marine microbes in some way, but also that marine microbes themselves could be processing this oil, could be digesting portions of this tar or this crude in the long run. So you mentioned Santa Barbara, right? The coast of California has a lot of what we call seeps, which are natural sources of tar, natural sources of oil that just are always there, and they just seep small or you know, sometimes not so small amounts of oil. So some people will have studied parts of the microbial community in re- relationship to these natural seeps. But what we are doing really has not been done here in California before, and that's why it's scientifically exciting for us.
1: Great. So what do you do? You've had your meeting, and now you've been given the go-ahead, right?
0: Yeah.
2: So how we collect water is we have this red bucket that we take down to Newport Pier, And we throw it as hard as we can (laughs) over the side of the pier and we drag up the water, which is much heavier than you think it would be. And then we collect for different sample types. So the way we chose the parameters that we're sampling is our lab actually has a 10 year time series at Newport Pier. So what we were doing is just increasing the number of samples we were taking per week so that we can look at those short-term impacts. So we collected things for understanding changes in the bacterial community, which are the really, really small, the, the yeah, the smallest, I was thinking, are they the smallest? They're the viruses. I guess the viruses would <laughs> Are viruses alive. Anyways. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> the smallest parts of the- of How long the is this show- community? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the microbial community so we wanted to collect for that but then also we wanted to look at um, changes in the nutrients because the nutrients are the food source for the bacteria so we wanted to understand not only what is happening to the microbes but also what's happening to their food sources Mm -hmm. so we can really understand like what the role is that oil is playing here
1: interesting so is Science now at the micro. I we kind of touched on it before, but like, yeah, you know, we haven't been at this micro level before. I mean, is that true?
2: Yeah, and that has a lot to do with advances in technology. So, how we look at changes in the bacterial community is by sequencing the DNA. And sequencing used to be prohibitively expensive, like very, very expensive. And over the last decade cost has really come down which is what allows us to do this type of study now.
1: Wow. Yeah. So how often did you go down to get test samples ocean water samples?
2: So for the first month after the spill we went three times a week we went Monday Wednesday Friday and then after a month we switched back to doing weekly collections. Okay Mm -hmm.
1: and was it always about the same amount of time or were there days when things would go crazy and
0: (laughs) Fridays definitely took longer. (laughs) We would be exhausted too. It's, it's hard work. It's, it's, you know, it's hard on your body. You have to be like, dragging pails of water from that pier. Really?
1: Um, like, it's not just little bottles? Uh, no, it's It's like pa- no, pails? It's very, <laughs> it's very Really?
0: Yeah. Wow. yeah. And, you know, like, you can do it once a week and it's fine. We even thought about, like, building a pulley system for a <laughs> month. And we're like, this is taking too long to build this pulley system. So let's just pull it out of the bucket. When you do it once a week, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. But we really were not, you know, again, we were not preparing to do this as part of our PhD experience, right? Mm-hmm. We each have our own research projects that we're working on, that we've been working on since we started our PhDs. This was an add-on. This was something that we decided to take on as an extra assignment. And, you know, we had to make adjustments to our schedules, our daily schedules, and... Um, I have a kid. I have to figure out how to deal with, like, child care. Both Melissa and I have dogs. So we were, like, you know, neglecting our pets so that we could be out there <laughs> collecting samples and... But so by Friday, we were exhausted. And that's why Melissa is saying that Friday was out. It always took the longest because Friday we would be like looking at each other and we're like, oh my gosh, how long more do we have to do this for?
1: So it wasn't so much, the work was the same every day. It's just that your your <laughs> yes. bodies were worn out. Yes, exactly. Okay.
0: okay. And we would get an eventual eventual um, pass buyer that would ask us questions. And we would tell them what we were doing and chit-chat about science. So... We're complaining about how difficult it was, but it was also very fun in many ways to be out there interacting with the public, working together, which we had never done before.
1: Did both of you go down every oh, day? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh wow. So, <laughs> We're
0: a team. Yeah.
1: <laughs> gotcha. We'll see, was it, at it,
0: eight o'clock in
2: the morning? That That's, that yep. was the time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and
1: and how long would you be down there?
2: Um. Well, it depends on what the topic of conversation was that day. <laughs> we spent a lot of
0: time getting to know each other out on that yeah. Year, yeah. So. You collect one. Some of the stuff that I do has to be processed on, in right, right there, right? Like most of Melissa's work happens after she gets back to the lab. Mm-hmm. Well, I do about half of the processing of the samples on the spot. And so a lot of times she would be done and then she would be waiting for me to finish like pipetting things and filtering things or whatever it is that mm. I was doing. And we would be chit-chatting and, you know, just or, or talking to, again, uh, people who were walking at the pier. Mm-hmm. yeah so oh. fun times and then sometimes it you know it would be rainy it would be windy it was this is october you know it was like <laughs> <laughs>
2: we moved really fast on those yes yeah, so <laughs> on those days we were in and out <laughs> yeah so anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour and a half yeah yeah, yeah okay like
1: and did the spill change over time like was it at first you know was it noticeable to change
0: absolutely Yeah. So the, you know, when they, the first time that we did collections, Melissa actually got pictures of the oil sheen on the surface of the water. And then within a few days that was gone. And then what we started seeing over and over was tar. So tar balls or tar globs that would wash ashore. Um, And the response team, right? the, The team that was hired to come and do the cleanup they would show up all dressed up in hazmat and uh, they would arrive for work 8, p- 8 a.m. and they would start collecting that stuff from the beach. You know, They would be bagging like racks of kelp that had oil on it. And they would be pretty much cleaning the sand up and just removing everything that they found which could be covered in oil. So to get tar samples, I would actually have to arrive before the cleanup crew every day and just wait you know just like try to get as much as I could before they would arrive Mm. that was the funnest part
2: for me was trying to find (laughs) Joanna because she would get there before I would and I would see her car and and she wouldn't be in there and then I would look and I would see somebody running on the beach (laughs) And then like dropping down. I'm like, oh, that Uh, must be her. She must be getting some tar. I'm getting
0: some tar before the the hazmat people come get my tar. Yeah. So for several days, every morning, we would see new tar balls or tar globs washing ashore. And obviously the public didn't get to see that because who's going to go show up at the beach that early, right? So there was a really efficient cleanup effort that was assembled after the oil spill, which is a great thing. I think it's commendable that, that that was provided. But what it did, it really created a sense that the the oil spill was under control. You're asking about, you know, the visibility of that mm-hmm. spill. After a few days, you couldn't see it anymore. But does that mean that it's not there? That's what we're investigating. We want to see what the eye cannot see anymore, you know. And then that's why we do these measurements of the chemicals that are still in the water so that we can detect exposure to these components of the oil and to the tar that could be underwater.
1: Hmm. Well, wow, interesting. So, do you have any results of you know in at this microorganism level?
0: So
2: that is the exciting part too, right? So science takes a long time, and we've actually managed to do this project quite quickly i want to like give ourselves like a pat on the back for that (laughs) um and we just got back the results from the sequencing that we did and so the next step is to start actually analyzing those Mm, okay so we have we have received data back but we don't have any like really awesome preliminary results to share right it would
0: be a while before we can actually get to the conclusions part right so the work of the scientist Different from like people working with management, and I worked with management, right? Like I worked as a as a coastal manager, working for the state, and that's a different mindset. You're not there to do research; you're there to solve problems, right? You're there to like answer to a certain issue immediately. Well, the work that scientists do when they're doing research is different. It takes time. It takes analysis. It takes like reconsideration of your hypothesis that you test and all that. So we have been getting. Results from the chemical analysis of the water that's been done by a collaborator that we have here, UCI Professor Chris Olivares. Big shout out to Chris and his student um, Jalin Dong. They, to the two of them, have been um, just instrumental in this whole process. They've been. We were so lucky to find them when we did because we really needed this chemical analysis of the water and for. For a while, we thought we wouldn't get it because we, you know, there's no funding for this project. So we couldn't send samples out for analysis because mm-hmm. it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. So we've been getting data from them. So we've been having results coming in the whole time since the beginning because their, their samples cannot wait. They cannot be frozen. They cannot be stored. They have to be processed immediately. But now it will take us a few months to put all of this together. So it's not like we're not getting preliminary results. We are. But it will take time to get all this data assembled and then make sense out of it to actually be able to explain what we're seeing in light of all these parameters that we are measuring.
1: Gotcha. And isn't there a researcher at UCSB that you worked with quite a lot?
0: Yeah. and I'm, I'm not sure if quite a lot. But, again, oh. someone who was um, – we were just so lucky. Like, people were just responding to us exactly when we needed, Right. In the beginning, we started without knowing how we would get all these auxiliary data sets that we needed. We knew what we could do ourselves in our labs, but we also wanted to have this extra data to go along with the genetics that Melissa is doing and the microscopy that I'm doing. And so we started just emailing everybody we knew. And eventually, this was actually through Melissa's advisor, uh, he told me to contact this professor at UCSB called Dave Valentine, who was um, a very well-known, very famous scientist. And I was very moved by how quickly he responded and how helpful he was in terms of giving us instructions on how to properly collect samples and how to follow the protocols that we were not familiar with. Because again, we were very familiar with most of the protocols we used, but there were a few of the things we were doing that were new to us.
1: Gotcha. Excuse me again, Melissa and Joanna. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And my guests today are PhD environmental scientist candidates, Joanna Tavares and Melissa Brock. And we're just talking about their research that was recently done on the October 2021 oil spill leakage. Wow. Thank you for your work. It was definitely necessary. Can't wait to see the results.
2: Yeah, we can't either. <laughs> We're excited.
1: What about your? You you referred to your normal studies and the things you're working on. What do you normally work on?
2: So I do all things ocean bacteria. And I refer to my dissertation as a love letter to marine microbes. So my primary interest is in understanding how humans are impacting the oceans and impacting the microbes there. And so I do everything from like really small scale laboratory studies to looking at ocean basin size patterns. So, yeah.
1: Wow. Are there any specific areas that you, you know, parts of the ocean or locations or something like that, that we might understand?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the project that I'm most excited about is looking at how viral lysis of marine bacteria influences carbon cycling, which is really important because um, a lot, well, several... Marine bacteria can perform photosynthesis and they actually can produce up to 50% of the world's oxygen. They're just as important as plants wow. in regulating our oxygen and carbon cycles. Wow. And so, understanding how, like, they're, they're not to be dramatic, but I guess to be dramatic, how to understand their <laughs> death by infection. Be dramatic.
0: Go Involve. ahead, it's bacteria. <laughs> Go. Ahead. Yeah.
2: To understand how, like, death through, like, viral infection influences carbon cycling can have this really big impact on, like, CO2. Wow.
1: Interesting. So do you have any conclusions at this point? or? I keep asking for the end result. You you want us to
0: give us some (laughs) results. No, I
2: I have my cultures growing in the lab. They're a beautiful pink color. Yes.
1: So does that mean they're healthy?
2: Yes. And every morning I tell them you're doing a great job.
1: So you talk to your microorganisms.
2: Yeah, they
0: need encouragement just like we do.
1: Very good. And how about you, Joanna?
0: Right. So my thesis is, as I was mentioning before, uh, related with um, emissions, um, mainly what comes out of um, ships and boats, smokestacks. So when those vessels, those boats, those ships are traveling around, they're combusting fossil fuels in their engines. And the smoke that comes out of the smokestack a lot of times will contain chemical elements that can either be toxic to certain marine microbes mm-hmm. or that can actually artificially fertilize the marine microbes so they can actually give some of these organisms an advantage over others. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at like, potential change in the composition of the community, you know, not people's community, microbial community. So that's what I've been doing for my thesis. And then I also do a lot of work outside of the PhD. I work with these local nonprofit organizations. I already mentioned Amigos de Bolsa Chica. I also work with the Newport Bay Conservancy. Um, I do a lot of work with people who are fighting for climate action. So we have a few uh, collaborators and nonprofits that we work with. And I am trying to learn how to be a better communicator because that's what I want to do after I graduate. I want to go back to teaching and I also want to work talking about science and specifically climate change and climate action in the hopes that we can, you know, solve this situation we're in. We're kind of in a pickle. And so I feel like that's where I can put my energy and effort in for, for the next decade.
1: Yeah, very good. Will your research translate all over the world? Do you guys envision that? Are you in touch with colleagues that that are doing that kind of work, like your dissertation things that you're working on?
2: Mm, Yeah, the marine science community is very connected as far as like global operations, particularly when we do these big very large ocean wide surveys that usually involves like many, many different labs. It involves different countries. There's entire international organizations that organize these types of cruises. And so the ocean research community is very interconnected. And we all like to help each other out and collaborate because it's really more of, Like we're all curious about this thing and we want to understand it as best as possible. So let's all work together and and do great science.
1: Will you be going on one of these trips anytime soon or have you already gone?
2: So the pandemic delayed a lot of cruises and so the schedule got shifted around a bit, but yes, I do have a spot on a really long cruise. It's a 55 day cruise in the Southern Indian Ocean that goes from Cape Town, South Africa to Perth, Australia.
1: Hmm. When's that?
2: It's supposed to be early next year in twenty twenty three. So crossing my fingers, nothing else changes that schedule.
0: Right, right. And yeah. if if I already have my radio show by then, we'll have her call from the middle of the ocean, huh? Uh, How about that? That'll be, well, that'd healthy, be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: have you gone on some of these cruises, Joanna?
0: I have. Yeah. I uh, last summer I went on. A, it was it wasn't as exciting as hers. It was a short cruise, but it was very exciting for me. And that was going to a state called BIOS which is the Bermuda station it's like you know in the middle of the Atlantic and um, it's one of these locations that oceanographers always dream of going to and I remember as an undergraduate student back in my little university in the south of Brazil dreaming that one day I would go see this BIOS station so I got to go last summer and collect water there and do some work there.
1: Do either of you have science heroes like somebody in your field that is just like oh my gosh if I could get to any comparison to what this person has done is is there anybody for you Melissa
2: Mm, I think that's a tough question for me to answer because I don't see a lot of people like myself in STEM and so it can be really hard to idolize someone who you don't really relate to personally and so for me i try to like humanize other scientists as as much as possible because that makes it easier for me to approach them and talk to them about ideas and try to get some sort of collaboration or mentorship from them but that's just my (laughs) my personal (laughs) perspective
0: (laughs) yeah representation is still an issue i think we're very lucky right in our in our departments i i guess we could you know if you we don't have to go that far. Like I think you were asking about like, you know, famous scientists out there, but mm-hmm. I guess I actually find a lot of inspiration in our own department. My advisor, Professor Kate Mackey, is someone that I admire a lot. And we have other women in our department that have done amazing work. We have Professor Ellen Druffel who actually is a very famous scientist and was one of the first women to really break so many how do we call um, uh, barriers. barriers, yeah, and, and you know, go out to sea and do, cru- you know, work on long cruises and, and really discover a whole field of knowledge that was, you know, that she was the one who started. And it's pretty remarkable.
2: So to contextualize what Joanna is saying, women were not allowed to go offshore until I think the
0: 1960s. They were barred from oceanographic research. Yeah. Mm, wow. So... You know come a long ways and there are women that we get the chance to see and interact with that i think are inspirational i think my department so we're in different departments yeah, yeah, yeah. tell so us about your department i'm in the earth system science department and i think it, it's a really fantastic legacy um we have people like you know cheryl roland and um mario molina who were people who of course made history by Ah uh, discovering the, and explaining the the chemical workings of the whole in the ozone layer, and then taking all this knowledge outside of the laboratory and really fighting for uh, the acknowledgement of that problem as a problem and you know you know really pushing for policy change that would match the the urgency of that problem. Um, Sherry
1: Rowland really was a science communicator. I understand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we have this legacy in our department. And I think that it's worth acknowledging that. And then the people who came after the, the founding members of the department definitely kept up with this sentiment of the role that scientists can play in society beyond just doing research. And it's really hard because it's very difficult to be a good scientist it's very difficult it takes so much it's pretty much that's what you do <laughs> you know you go home and you're still thinking about science you go you know watch your kids play soccer and you're still thinking about science because it's it's an all-consuming type of of job and it it's very difficult to make to to have a successful korean science and then some people are even going the next you know Taking the extra step of becoming a communicator, of doing this extra work, most of the time unpaid work to do either outreach or to translate some of the science into something that can be comprehended by policymakers. So, you know, it's remarkable. And we have a lot of amazing professors in our departments, I think. But what Melissa said is absolutely true. Representation is still a big issue, especially for women women of color, particularly minorities in general. So we're definitely seeing progress but it's still quite slow.
1: Gotcha. And how about you, Melissa? What department are you in?
0: So I'm in
2: the ecology and evolutionary biology department. And we focus there are three different sections within that department. The you know, it, two of them are in the name, the ecology um, faction of people, the evolutionary group and then the physiology group. And so we all focus on different aspects of biology. I'm in the ecology group, which is trying to understand how a particular organism um, interacts with its environment and um, other organisms. So basically understanding the interconnectedness of an organism to its surroundings.
1: Gotcha. And I know you guys are passionate about climate change. Can you just give us a brief overview of what is going on
0: right now? Oof! How much time do we have left? (laughs) Uh, I know. (laughs) Oh, Melissa, do do you want to start? No, please. please. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal. It is a big problem. It's something that uh, I feel like if more people understood how big the problem is, uh, we would probably be moving faster towards a solution. The solutions are not easy. You know, what we're up against is a huge challenge. We know, scientifically speaking, that to prevent the worst effects of global warming, climate change is... You know, a bigger term that includes all the effects caused by an average, you know, an average warming of the surface of the planet. So we don't we don't we hear people now talking about climate change uh, and avoiding the term global warming, because for the longest time, people will get confused that you can have more snowstorms in a global warming world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard for people to understand. But the reality is that on average, the planet is getting warmer. And we know scientists have a very strong consensus. The consensus is as good as it's going to get for anything that that is happening, that it's happening really fast. The planet is already much warmer than what it should be. And we know that there is a threshold temperature of 1.5 degrees Celsius, that if we pass that threshold, there will be serious consequences. Right. We know already that we are going to pass but there are now technologies that allow us to kind of reclaim some of this carbon from the atmosphere and return to this 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. So we, you know, when scientists do all these calculations, they have these model simulations, and we know that if we go over this 1.5 Celsius degree, 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we don't bring it back down to 1.5, the consequences are mass extinction of plants and animals collapse of entire ecosystems, large areas of the planet that will be unfarmable and unlivable. Right now, there is a heat wave happening in India that's killing people. Heat killing people. It's the hottest heat wave in 150 years in India. And so you have places in the world that are already experiencing massive flooding because of unprecedented rainfall, So in Brazil, February this year, 100 people dead because of landslides caused by this like record amount of rain that fell in Rio de Janeiro. And then again in April, another (laughs) landslide also because of unprecedented amount of rain. South Africa, 440 people dead because of a landslide, again, associated with a record rainfall that is caused by climate change. So we know it's already happening To keep the planet from going above this threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the scientists have already told us, too, we must cut emissions, global emissions, by 50%. That's a huge, huge ask. But it's doable. It's doable. We have the technology. We have the means to do it. So really what we're lacking right now is the political will, is the support of the public to actually go out there and fight for those policies to pass, we have right now one big policy the build back better which is at you know right now at the Senate stuck at the Senate and that is you know these things we need people to be informed and engaged
1: Thank you Joanna let's update our audience right now and is going to be a science communicator and this summer she's going to be a DJ on KUCI so I'm going to give her the opportunity to do a guest ID. Please, Joanna. Oh, my
0: gosh. Okay, I got to get my like my radio vo- my DJ voice. Okay, hold on. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to UCI Conversations, hosted by Kevin Bossenmeyer. His two guests today are myself, PhD candidate, hopefully to graduate in the fall, Joanna Tavares, from the Department of Earth System Science. And my colleague and his other guest is the amazing, fantastic, beautiful grad student, Melissa Brock, from the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. We obviously, as you probably can tell, love to talk about science. I don't love talking about climate change, but I talk a lot about it because I think we need to. And I'm gonna give back to Kevin.
1: Thank you, Joanna. Melissa, can you please just tell us a little bit of your perspective about climate change?
2: Yeah, so obviously echoing everything that Joanna just said, and again, I think the major problem is that scientists all agree that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's a crisis. And we all agree that everybody should be talking about this, but there's a real barrier in between like communicating between scientists in academia and with the general public and communicating it in a way so that they understand not only what the situation is, what the level of urgency is, and what they can expect to happen if we do nothing, but also that element of hope. That there are things that we can do. And this is the path forward so that we can have this bright, hopeful future, not only for ourselves, but also for our kids and future
0: generations.
1: Mm. Are there things that we can do right now?
0: Yes, there are things we can do right now. There are many things. Some of them will have a greater impact in the long run, and some of them are more urgent right now. And it's complicated because we need people to be doing both. You ready for this? Please. So in the long run, we should all be consuming less, particularly consuming less things that that depend on fossil fuels. So, of course, a lot of people are already switching to electric cars, and that's great. If you can install solar panels on top of your roof, if you have a roof, do it. Uh, If you rent, like me, you don't have the ability to do that yourself, but maybe start asking, you know, whomever you rent from to do that. One of the major things that individuals can do is to consume less beef, less meat. I don't have the time to explain the connection between meat and the climate crisis, but it's a very clear connection. So if people can eat less beef, that's one thing. Fly less. Flying is a big source of carbon emissions. So that's all in the long run. Oh, heat pumps. If you you need to heat your home, heat pumps are big. (laughs) Heat pumps, everybody. Look them up. Those are things that we call individual action. These are great things. You know, if you have the means to do them, that's great. But right now, in this exact moment, we only have eight years left. And what we need are policy changes. And the politicians that we have right now in power are dragging their feet a lot of times because, you know, they get a lot of donations from the fossil fuel company so this is not i'm not making this up this is available online you can look up who has received donations from oil and gas for their campaigns it's all there and so it's really hard to pass the legislation that we need to pass so with that in mind people need to protest contact your local chapter for sunrise movement your youth movements are at the forefront of these protests so call them sunrise movement fridays for future These are youth groups, and they're already doing the work that the adults need to be doing as well.
1: Anything else to add, Melissa? Does that sound like a good start?
0: Yeah, I think that would be a great start. Great. But don't be so sad, Kevin. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I know. I know it's hard. But listen, we are strong. We are powerful people. We've gone through so much. 300,000 years roaming on Earth. Humans are amazing, creative powerful courageous we've done so much we've left the serengeti and colonized this whole planet we have creativity we can do this i really think right now is a matter of getting everyone on board mm-hmm. i i'm excited i'm excited i think the future is bright i think once we all decide that we want to do this we want to save this planet we're going to do it
1: fantastic Well, I just want to say thank you to both of you for the work that you do. Joanna, best of luck with uh, getting your radio show. We can't wait to hear you on KUCI. And Melissa, we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.
1: Thank you again to UCI Ecology and Evolutionary Biology PhD student Melissa Brock and Earth System Science PhD student Joanna Tavares for their passionate work keeping our oceans healthy, and for their remarkable ability to communicate their science effectively. I look forward to reporting on their research findings to the October oil spill. And finally, much good luck and good fortune on their PhD road. For Joanna Tavares, the end of the road is within sight this fall, and Melissa Brock for the spring of 2024. Kudos, mighty eaters! Keep up the great work. And now turning the page, coming up next at the top of the hour is Oswaldo Diaz hosting his Spanish speaking Mindfulness 30 Minutes. Enjoy. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zod 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 everyday anteaters. For an encore rebroadcast of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. Thanks for listening. Keep up the hard work and go, go, go Ukraine. Ladies and gentlemen, please donate to the UCI Ukraine Scholars at Risk Program, helping Ukrainian refugees come to UCI. The web address is zotfunder.give.uci.edu. That's zotfunder dot thank you very very much i'm your host kevin bossenmeyer it's been my good fortune and pleasure to serve right now coming up to close the show is my piano commodore fred kaplan playing from his classic blue cd signifying feel the groove so long everybody happy trails